Well, have you guys ever been told by your parents or maybe parents tell your kids, we don't do that here. That's not who we are. Whatever you just said, whatever you just did, that's, that's not our family. That's, that's not what we do here. Maybe you've heard it in, a, in a, a workplace setting, right? There's kind of a certain ethos that happens where you just kind of feel all the employees kind of act a certain way. And you kind of feel when you step outside those boundaries and you get that, that's not, that's not what we're about here. That's, that's not what we're here. There's people, there is a way, rather, that people are expected to be. Why? Because they're part of something else. They're part of a larger thing. We've been talking about the kingdom of God. And we are all citizens in the kingdom of God if we are believers, right? And we have much that the Bible calls us to in the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is a place like no other, certainly different than the world around it. The kingdom of God, we said last week, is a place of purity, we're serious about sin, and we need to protect each other from sin and protect the purity of the church. But sin requires forgiveness. So what's forgiveness? Is it just saying, I'm sorry? Is it just feeling badly about something that you've done to someone else? How do we, how do we deal with that? How do we process it? Do we just stuff it down? Time heals all wounds. Maybe just give it a little bit. Maybe just ignore it. One of the many things we will see today in a very powerful passage is this, none of those things that I just mentioned are the biblical response and the biblical definition of forgiveness. Why is forgiveness such a big deal in the kingdom of God? That's what we're going to talk about today as, as Len read for us in Matthew 18. Last week, again, we saw the kingdom of God, the visible, the church, the visible representation of the kingdom on earth. We must faithfully live out our calling in purity. And he's given us a process to deal with sin in our midst, in relationships, as well as for the leadership of the church. And the kingdom of God, again, is a place of purity. We must be diligent to make sure that sin does not take root in the church. And Jesus has been so gracious to give us that, that process. And out of love, we, like Jesus then, go after the one sheep who has wandered away from the 99 and into sin. And we rescue them out of love. We bring them back. We bear with them in grace. We seek to reconcile because we have been reconciled. And to our American culture, that might sound harsh, that we would go and actually talk to somebody about their business, about sin. It seems harsh to the world around us, but we're called to something different here. We're called to the kingdom of God here. The disciples had a very, very different reaction to that as well. Let's look again at Matthew 18 in verse 21. Then Peter came up to him and said, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him as many as seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. I hope we read these verses, and I want you to read these verses, in the context of where we were last week, right? Because Jesus gave us that pattern of dealing with sin, right? We want to reconcile with each other. And so Peter does the math, and Peter says, okay, great, so let me, ju let me just see if I'm tracking with this, Jesus. Uh, you said that if we, we want to reconcile, so, so somebody comes to me and says they sinned against me and I, I, you know, I forgive them, you know, okay, cool, but how many times am I supposed to do that? Like, because it's setting up kind of a bad precedent, Jesus, you know, because they could just continue to do that. I mean, how many times am I supposed to forgive my brother? 
He just keeps coming up to me and coming up to me, and I have to just keep forgiving him? That's, that, I, that could be a lot of times, don't you think, Jesus? So maybe why don't we put a number on it? You know, maybe just like, you know, we'll be generous. Seven? Let's call it seven. Seven times? Is that good? Now, Peter thought he was being real generous because in the Jewish law, you got three. And so he's like, maybe I'll double it and add one more. Maybe that, he'll be satisfied with that. How about that? How about seven? And Jesus says, no, not seven. Like 70 times seven. Or 77s. The Greek is a little weird. We don't exactly know what the exact number is. And that's the point. There is no exact number. Jesus says there is no exact number on how many times, right? If you do the math and that adds up to 490 times, I guarantee my wife has forgiven me more than 490 times in our 28 years of marriage, right? It's not the point to have a specific number in that. And Jesus says, really, basically, Peter, there is no maximum amount of times that you would forgive your brother if he comes up to you and asks for forgiveness. Now, there's one key biblical element that we have to bring in here for balance, though. There's a prerequisite to forgiveness that Matthew doesn't mention, but Luke does, and we have to just pay attention to that because we're not, uh, this is not uh, abusing someone's forgiveness, right? Luke 17, verse 3, in a very similar passage, maybe even the same conversation, Jesus says, pay attention to yourself. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And watch this. If he repents, forgive him. Verse 4. If he sins against you seven times in the day. See, similar numbers, right? Seven, the number of completion. That's why Jesus is saying this. If he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. So we've got to remember, pull these things together here. The whole, the whole biblical counsel, it, it's repentance, Right? It's not just someone abusing your forgiveness and saying, ah, my bad. You got to forgive me. Neener, neener, neener. Like, that's not, not what we're talking about here. Somebody has to actually repent. And to repent, that means you are turning. It's an, it's an inward turn. I'm turning away from that sin. I no longer want to do that. I understand what that did to you. So I'm repenting. I'm turning from that. So biblical Priority number one is, is repentance before forgiveness. If your brother repents, you must forgive him no matter how many times. I can just imagine Peter's jaw on the floor like it has been so many times before, right? Maybe forehead rubbing. Like, why does he always do this? He always, like, we have a nice little law. We've got a nice little thing. And then he just goes and blows that out of the water. Just like in chapter six, right? You know, we're coming at him with the law, and he says, yeah, fine, do not murder. Cool, I've never murdered anybody. Actually, you have. If you've ever been angry with anybody, you've murdered them in your heart. Well, the law says do not commit adultery. I've never cheated on my spouse. Have you? In your heart? It's the same thing. Now he says this. Guess what? Somebody comes up to you and repents and asks for forgiveness. You're not going to hold them to the letter of the law. You're going to go beyond that in grace. You are going to forgive them as many times as they need you to. And Peter, of course, just that's crazy. They just keep sinning, and I keep on forgiving. When do I get my revenge in this, Jesus? When do I just cut them off out of my life? You don't. Why not? And that, church, is the central question of this passage. Why do this? Why do any of this? Why forgive it all? That's where Jesus goes next. And it's a little bit of story time, Jesus says. Look at verse 23. He says, Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king 
who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and his children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him from the debt. Now just pause there. Jesus tells the story, which to us seems weird. It's out of context. We don't get some of these things that are happening. So we got a little bit of work to contextually dig through this. Jesus starts talking about the kingdom of God again, which he has been. He says the kingdom of God can be compared to a king, a human king, who wanted to settle his accounts with his servants. Now, some guys think that this is a king that's simply collecting taxes from his kingdom. And his servants then go out and they collect the taxes and then they bring them back to the king. And so it's natural that the king would reconcile accounts. You should be doing that every once in a while. Time to call in. You know, it's tax season coming up, right? Like next month. Time to call in all of the taxes. Let's see where we are, right? And so we're talking about big amounts of money here. We're talking about taxes for different parts of the kingdom. It could be big amounts of money. He calls in the one servant who owes him 10,000 talents. And there's something that's going to be lost on us because, cool story, bro, but what's a talent? I have no idea what, what a talent is. A talent is the highest measurement of money at that time. And this dude owes him 10,000 talents. It's hard to place, again, an exact number on what this would translate to. But again, the point is not an exact number. The point is that Jesus is using such a hyperbolic kind of made-up number that the disciples have no idea what he's talking about. It would be our equivalent of saying, yeah, you owe me 11 gajillion dollars. It just doesn't make any sense. 10,000 talents, people can't even conceive of that much. Most commentators would say this is in the billions of dollars. Most commentators say it would take decades and decades, if, you're, if not your whole life, if that's possible, to repay this debt. The man falls down on his knees, helpless before the king, because he knows what? He knows he can't repay this. There's no possible way. And he says, please have patience with me, and I will pay you. And the king then does something amazing. He has compassion on the man. He has pity. The king knows there is no way that this man can repay this debt. He could say that. He goes, okay, fine, I'll give you another 10 years. 10 years, never going to happen. He knows that. He knows there's no way that this person can repay the debt. So what does the king do? He has mercy on him. He forgives him the debt. He says, you know what? No more debt. You're released. You don't have to pay me back at all. This is an astounding act of mercy and compassion on the part of the king. And you're catching the parallel, church. We're that guy. We're the servant. God is the king. We owe God a debt that we could never pay. That is so enormous. And we fall down on our knees before our king and we say, have mercy on me. Be patient with me. And he forgives that debt. And here's the point. God forgives the debt that we could never pay. God forgives the debt that we could never pay. And church, again, we are this servant. We have no hope of ever repaying the debt that sin has put us in. Very often, Scripture refers to sin as a debt. 
meaning we owe God something. What do we owe God? I didn't get into any, any financial agreement with God. What, what do you mean I owe God? Well, yeah, God's God. He's creator. He's sovereign ruler over all his whole earth. And God then has a set of laws that he rules his kingdom with, right? That's what we got to start with. Like God is king and ruler over the world that he created, right? That's, that's, that's number one, right? Reject that or accept it. It's still true. God's still king of his kingdom. And therefore, as the king of his kingdom, he has rules and he has standards. And we broke them. Our first parents did. And we have been breaking them ever since. We've all broken his moral law in letter or in spirit. You might say again, well, I haven't murdered anyone. Well, what did Jesus say about that? I haven't committed adultery. Well, what did Jesus say about that? And most damning of all, We've all worshipped other things in place of God. God says, you are to love me with everything that you have. And we've all broken that one. Right? We put anything else in that spot. We, we, we put our status or ourselves or our comfort or our career or our kids or whatever. And God alone is worthy of worship and that devotion. We've all broken that commandment. Therefore, we have all incurred this debt that we cannot pay. We cannot pay because it's such a massive debt, not because our sin may have been so great, and we'll talk about that in a minute, but it's who we sinned against, right? It's like a little, little corny analogy that I think of, right? If you tell a lie, like if you tell a fib, if you're a kid, you tell a fib to one of your kid's friends on the school bus, right? You know, okay, it's still a sin, right? But probably not a lot of ramifications for that. You tell a lie in court as a grown-up to a judge, you're going to jail, Right? What's the difference? Not the sin, the person you're sinning against. Right? And so God is infinitely holy and perfect and good. And so any sin against him is going to be that 10,000 talent sin. Any sin. That's why we, we have a debt that we cannot pay. That, that's what we see <clears throat> in the world. That's what we see in the world as far as the implications of sin in the world, right? Everybody in the world knows that there's something cosmically wrong with it. Everybody looks at what's going on in the Ukraine and says there's something morally cosmically wrong with this. Why? Why do we think that? We think that because we know that there's a way that things should be, and that's not it. Evil exists, and the only answer, church, for it is the biblical worldview. Evil must have an answer, and there's only one answer. Sin must have an answer, and there's only one answer. No other worldview has an answer for that. It's just, oh well, it happens. This is the one part of the story that we fill in with even greater significance in the cross of Christ. In the story, it appears that the man just forgives the debt. In the story, the king just says, okay, you're off the hook, right? Maybe he paid it himself, or it was the debt to him anyway, so maybe he just didn't do anything about it. But that's where we have to draw in the distinction of what Jesus has done for us. Because not so in the gospel. Because in the gospel, the king himself pays this debt. You've got to remember that. In the gospel, the king himself pays the debt. It is a debt, again, so large, why that only God himself can pay it to begin with. So he does, through Jesus. God the Son paying the debt on the cross for our sins and thereby enabling forgiveness and reconciliation through faith alone in him. The Apostle Paul talks about it in many places. I'll take us to Colossians probably a couple times today. Colossians 2, verse 13. 
And you who are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, that's us, God made alive together with him, Jesus, having forgiven all of our trespasses. Watch this. How do you do it? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Back in the day, you would have your charges posted on the cross or whatever execution you were having. This is why this person is being sentenced to death because of what they did, right? And so Paul's saying, yeah, all our charges were up there on the cross and we were guilty and we couldn't pay them back. But Jesus did it for us. Not only that, he canceled it. John Stott said that not only did God cancel the debt, but he destroyed the very paper it was written on. It's gone. It's gone. And if you are here this morning and you are a Christian and you are struggling with understanding forgiveness, just let that soak into your soul. The fact that your sin is forgiven, your debt that you owe to God, that you could not pay, has been canceled and forgotten, paid in full by the blood of Jesus on the cross. If you are here and you are not yet a Christian, this could be yours. It requires faith. It requires turning from your, your sin and placing your full faith, right? Only by, watch this, taking the posture of that servant, right? falling down on your knees before the king and saying, have mercy on me. That's, that's how that happens. We place our faith in Jesus Christ. If you haven't done this, do it today. You can be free of your sin. Let the gospel transform your entire worldview to walk in freedom of what God has been given to you. And now you'd think that the servant would then, after all the things he's been forgiven of, right, you would think that then he would turn around and be just as gracious to his fellow servants. Yeah, not so much. Look at verse 28. It says, but when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him saying, pay what you owe me. And so his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. Sound familiar? He refused and went out and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. Are you guys tracking this? Because if you are, you should be mostly outraged right now. This is, this is crazy. The servant has been forgiven an incalculable amount of money that he could never pay. And he goes and finds someone who actually owes him pennies compared to what his debt was forgiven. And he literally grabs him by the throat and says, pay me. And you're not going to pay me? I'll throw you in jail until you pay me. Now, again, we've got to understand this scale. A, a denarii is usually a day's wages for a Roman soldier or a, a laborer or something like that. So we're talking about 100 days pay, right? As opposed to 20, 30, 50 years pay. I mean, it's not an insignificant amount of money. Like, you know, think about what, what you make in three months or whatever. Three, it's, it's not an insignificant amount of money, but compared to what he's been forgiven of? Seriously? You're going to hold somebody to that? And don't, don't miss the fact that this is a fellow servant. It's not, it's, not, it's not over this guy like the king was over him. This is one of his buddies. He's a fellow servant, one of his peers, what equals, right? He literally grabs him by the throat and says, pay me my hundred denarii. 
his fellow servant falls down on his knees before and says the same thing that that servant had said previously to the king. Have mercy on me and I'll pay you back. He refuses to have compassion. He instead sends him to the jail until it could all be paid off. You've got to be kidding me. How in the world? It's crazy. It's unfair. It's unjust. It's insanity. It's also suicide, as we'll see. Look at verse 31. He says, when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed or deeply grieved. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. And when the master summoned him and said, You wicked servant, I forgave you all of that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had had mercy on you? And in his anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all of the debt. So his fellow servants, right, they all work for the same king. They're all equally outraged that one man would treat another fellow servant in this way. This brainiac guy did this in public, right? So everybody saw him doing this, and everybody knows how much he's been forgiven by the king, right? Because probably just like Tuesday, he was the guy falling down before somebody else saying, have mercy on me, man, I'll pay you back, right? And now this is happening again. These people are putting these pieces together. So guess what? They immediately go and rat him out. Immediately go and report to the king. Guess what? Remember how you forgave him all that money? He didn't forgive his fellow servant pennies. The king is outraged. And he calls the servant in again. And he says, you evil servant. Seriously? After I forgave you zillions of dollars that you are, you are never able to pay back, you're going to throw someone in jail to make him pay thousands of dollars? You think of all people, you would be the one to know what mercy is. You think of all people, you would remember what you've been forgiven of. And you would forgive your fellow servant. Now guess what? You're the one that's going to jail. And you're never getting out because you're never going to pay that debt. He will literally spend the rest of his life in punishment. The Greek here is actually not jailers, it's actually torturers. So they're going to torture him for the rest of his life because of this. He'll be punished for his lack of forgiveness. And here's the point. Those who are forgiven forgive others. Those who are forgiven forgive others. I can feel some of you thinking hard on that. Almost the, the Peter reaction. Right? Hold up, Pastor Mike. Wait a second. You don't know how much I've been sinned against. You don't know the ways that people have sinned against me. Pretty big stuff. And you just telling me I just got to forgive. I just got to sweep it under the carpet. That's not what I'm saying. But I am saying you have to forgive. So, so just because God forgave me, I'm just supposed to forgive anybody and anybody. Like just no matter what they did to me. What if it's something terrible? What if, what if we've been sinned against in life-altering ways? like traumatic sexual abuse. And God just says, I got to forgive him. First, I hear that loud and clear, okay? I get that. I understand that. So let's define terms here. I'm not saying we should just be sweeping things under the carpet. I'm not saying we should just ignore it or stuff it down or downplay any sin. Let's define forgiveness. I'm borrowing a lot of this from a biblical counseling seminar that we had many, many years ago. 
A few things that forgiveness is not. First of all, forgiveness is not a feeling. It's not a feeling. Forgiveness is not a feeling. It's an action. It's a transaction, actually. Second, forgiveness is not forgetting. That's something that you will hear in the world, right? That that's the, the measurement, the litmus test of forgiveness. And they might say, well, if you haven't forgotten about it, then you really haven't forgiven him. Wrong. If you've been sinned against, if you've been sexually assaulted, you're not forgetting that, right? God will bring healing and recovery through his grace. But you're not going to forget. That's not the litmus test. Forgive and forget is not biblical. That's not what we're talking about here. Forgiveness is also not excusing sin. It's not just sweeping it under the carpet and saying, don't worry about it, eh, stuff it down. It's not going to stay down, church. It's not going to stay down. It's going to come up. Maybe decades later, it's going to come up, and it's going to come up in really weird and twisted ways. And it's going to come up in ways to try and shut that voice up inside your soul that is screaming for reconciliation. You're going to try to shut it up with distractions or substances or whatever else it is. It's going to come up. So what is forgiveness? Two helpful definitions. The first one from Jay Adams says it this way. Forgiveness is a lifting of the charge of guilt from another. It's a formal declaration of that fact and a promise which is made and kept to never remember the wrong against him in the future. So when someone sins against us, church, there's guilt Right? There's guilt that actually happens. An offense has occurred. They're guilty of sinning against us. Forgiveness, then, is then the lifting of the charge of guilt. I am, I am, by forgiveness, I am saying that you are no longer guilty of sinning against me. I am, I am declaring you innocent. After that, of course, we have to walk through the emotional and relational issues that are there. Right? But forgiveness is at its core, it's a legal transaction. Right? We sinned against God. We are guilty. Right? What does God do for us? He declares us forgiven, justified. It's a, it's a thing. Same thing with forgiveness. You're saying, I know, I understand that you, forgive, you, you sinned against me. We all understand that. Right? I know you're repenting and you're asking for forgiveness and thereby I'm granting it to you. Chris Bronze in his book, Unpacking Forgiveness, very helpful book, defines it this way. Forgiveness is a commitment by the offended party to graciously pardon the repentant from moral liability and be reconciled to that person, although not all consequences are necessarily eliminated, right? We've got to separate forgiveness from consequences and emotional stuff, right? And the forgiveness in and of itself is a legal, spiritual transaction. You're lifting, you're declaring them innocent because there was guilt and there are two parts here in our emotionally driven world we focus so much on the second part we focus on our feelings yes sin is destructive yes it causes emotional pain and suffering and we want that to go away as soon as possible right but you can't do that to biblically understand forgiveness, church, we have to realize that the emotional pain will never go away unless it is dealt with at the cross. It will never go away unless it is dealt with at the cross. The actual guilt, right? You've got to separate between guilty feelings and guilt. Guilty feelings are often there because of the guilt. So we're here in America, we have guilty feelings. We don't like negative feelings. We don't like pain. We just want the guilty feelings to go away. Okay, that's not the root of the issue. The root of the issue is the guilt. 
We have to deal with the guilt first. Then you can deal with the guilty feelings that will follow. This is why a secular, humanistic, or atheistic worldview cannot truly forgive. You can't. Here's why. There was an actual guilt. Somebody's actually guilty. Somebody actually sinned against you. So if you don't have the cross, what happens to the guilt? No, no, somebody needs to pay for that sin. You're right. So in a secular, atheistic worldview, who does? Nobody does, right? How do they deal with it? Who pays for it? Forgiveness requires <clears throat> that someone pay for the guilt. And only a biblical worldview has that payment. You've got to remember that. It's through the precious blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. Forgiveness is an act of the will. It's not an act of the emotions. Forgiveness then is costly. And so how do we forgive? And I want to maybe try to look at three scenarios here. First, no forgiveness, right? It's kind of what I just pushed on with a secular worldview. A non-Christian sins against another non-Christian. How do they handle forgiveness? Well, the bottom line is spiritually they don't. There's no transaction. The debt hasn't been paid at all. The guilt hasn't been remedied at all. They can't. Without faith in Christ, there's no way to pay for the guilt. They probably handle it in all the ways that people usually do. They say they're sorry. They want to let time heal all wounds. They're going to overcompensate with kindness or stuff it down and try again to keep that voice quiet in their souls that's crying out for reconciliation. Right? Let's, let's look at a best-case scenario. Let's look at full forgiveness. Right? We have two Christians... One Christian sins against another Christian, right? They realize that immediately, and they go to the other Christian, just like Jesus taught us last week, and they say, look, I sinned against you in the following way. I feel really badly about it. I don't want to be that way. Help me, and would you please forgive me? They say yes. End of story. Forgiveness is granted, right? Cost paid by Jesus on the cross. Don't you guys, don't you feel that, right? When somebody sins against me, you feel that. You feel like, no, 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 no. Somebody's got to pay. Somebody's, there has to be some sort of, some sort of re reconciliation here. That's the cross. And so when we are, as Christians, coming together and we, we sin against each other, right, we remember, yes, that was, we're not minimizing that sin against each other. It was paid in blood. That's how much it cost. And, we, and that's, that's the debt then is, is satisfied, right? And over time, of course, we have to walk through the relational issues and, and the emotional issues, and that's why we're here as a community to do that with each other, right? But we all know that it doesn't work like that all the time, right? That would be the best case scenario. I sinned, forgive me, sure, best friends, cool. Doesn't always happen like that, right? Sometimes we don't know we sinned against another person. Sometimes we don't agree that it was sin, and sometimes maybe we don't even care. Sometimes maybe we think we sinned against someone and we don't care. So tough luck. I didn't see it that way. Get over it. Right? That's the worst case scenario. That's unresolved forgiveness. One Christian maybe and, or, and one non-Christian or maybe one Christian and another Christian that's not acting like a Christian. Right? Or maybe they think they're a Christian but they're, they're actually not. If we are the ones who have sinned against also a non-Christian Right? We sin against someone at the office or on the job site or you know, somebody in our neighborhood or something like that. Church, what a great opportunity to go to them and explain what sin is. 
you know, I sinned against you. The Bible says that I shouldn't be harsh. I should be patient. And I was impatient with you and I was harsh. And I'm a Christian and I'm called to this. And that's called sin. And I don't want to do that. I, I, don't, I, don't, want to, I don't want to sin. Would you please forgive me? And you can forgive me because that debt is paid on the cross of Jesus Christ. That's an amazing witness. Why? That right there is, is how we kill. Um, and the word just went right out of my head. <laughs> Hypocrites. Oh, that is how we kill hypocrisy. Right? Because that's what everybody thinks Christians are. When you're a hypocrite, right? You just think, yeah, everybody knows that you sinned, but we're not going to talk about that. We're just going to cover it up. No, be the one that talks about it. Be the hypocrisy killer. Be the ones that say, no, that was sin. I don't want to go that way. Please forgive me. What a witness it will be. What an explanation of the gospel. We actually admit that we're sinners in humility. That's a powerful witness. What if it's the non-Christian that sins against us or somebody who is in our church sins against us? Or what if this has gone the distance in church discipline and we still don't have resolution? That's where God's grace has to come in and minister to us. When we have that unresolved forgiveness, that's when God's grace has to come in and minister to us. We can think of it in, a, in, a, in one way, in the cosmic judgment kind of way that says sometimes, you know, we can try. But if, if reconciliation doesn't happen, there's a point where we're like, it's, I've done all I could. There's judgment day coming. And he knows. And evil's not getting away with anything. So, so sometimes, church, we just have to go to the end, the end of time and realize that this might not be settled until judgment day. And then it will be settled perfectly by Jesus. Sometimes, again, we expect a little bit too much out of this life, that we just have to be reconciled. Everything has to be fine, and we should. We should seek reconciliation, but we also should remember that sometimes that's not going to happen, but it will. One day, we place our hope, again, in Jesus. In those times, too, when we have unresolved forgiveness, which probably also happens to all of us at some degree, we have to be ready to forgive. But there's that transaction, right, that hasn't happened. So we kind of have to have the heart posture of being ready to forgive, but the transaction of forgiveness can't happen until someone actually says they repent and you grant forgiveness, right? But we have to be in our hearts ready to forgive. We have to protect against bitterness. We have to protect against revenge. We have to keep praying. We have to keep hoping. Romans 12 has many things to help us in this situation, in, in the life of a Christian, the calling of a true Christian. I'll read a chunk for us in Romans 12. It says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Watch this. Repay no one evil for evil. Well, that person, we're unresolved. I'm cutting them out. Or I'm not treating them the same way I treat my other brothers and sisters. Repay no one for evil, evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Here's the key. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. If possible, 
as long as it depends on you, right? Live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is what Jesus tells us to do in his word. We've got to remember, too, this goes back to what Jesus said last week, because as a community of believers, right, we need backup on this. That's why we have membership. That's why people have committed to be part of this body in some sort of formal way that we've organized, right? And then, therefore, we're saying we're all in this together so that when this happens, membership protects us from unresolved forgiveness. Because what happens then? We have the process. We just talked about it last week. We can bring others with us. We can bring it to the elders. And then if somebody wants to continue to be unrepentant, then they're not acting like a Christian and we can't sustain their testimony in Christ and they're excommunicated in the hopes that they would then repent and turn around, right? So you see how this all ties together? But church, even though in unresolved forgiveness we might not be able to complete that actual transaction, live at peace as long as it's up to you. Keep praying, keep hoping. If it's a situation where we need to involve the church, eating others among members, we need to do that in the hopes of reconciliation. But remember this, God, our Heavenly Father, sees all and knows all, and he knows the truth. And sometimes we don't continue to have to just justify ourselves because our Heavenly Father is the perfect judge, and he knows and there will be no evil that will be unpunished, right? Best case scenario, that person repents, asks for forgiveness, forgiveness is paid. It's still paid. It's paid on the cross. Or else it's going to be paid by them, similar to our story, in an eternity in hell. We've got to remember that. How in the world can we do this? Why would we do this? Because God takes sin all sin, even unforgiven, unresolved sin, very seriously. That's what Jesus then says the purpose of the whole story is about. Look at verse 35. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from the heart. This is a staggering verse. Definitely a top contender in the world's scariest Bible verses competition. If we don't forgive our brothers and sisters, God won't forgive us. How in the world? Do you see how bad, truly bad, unresolved forgiveness is? It should be an immediate comfort to us in those that refuse to repent and resolve uh, sin. Justice will be done again. Right? But it also should strike fear into our hearts and should cause us to peer more deeply into the meaning of the gospel and what we've been forgiven for ourselves. Church, since we have been forgiven so much, how can we possibly withhold forgiveness from someone else? What we've received vertically from God in forgiveness, then we extend horizontally to each other. And Jesus literally adds the or else. Or else you will not be forgiven. Here's why. If we're withholding forgiveness from someone, it just shows us how little we understand our sin before God. 
Because our sin is the 10,000 talent sin. Anybody that sins against us at all is going to fall far short than that. And now, not taking away from any major sins, right? Any, any trauma, any huge things that somebody has sinned against somebody, right? But let that also be further evidence because that's huge stuff, right? If you've been sinned against traumatically, that's huge stuff. I'm not downplaying that. But still, as huge as that is, it still doesn't compare to our sin against God. That's what we've got to see in this parable. Our sin against God is the 10,000 talents. It is, we are unable to repay it. Anyone who sins against us, even in huge ways, is still not even close to what we have been forgiven by God. And so then, how in the world could we withhold forgiveness from someone else? We've been forgiven so much. If we do, Jesus can say this because that shows you don't understand the gospel. It shows you don't understand what you've been forgiven of. It shows you don't understand the weight of your own sin against me. We just have a casual kind of understanding of sin. That's why this grinds against us, and we're like, you don't understand. It's like, no, I do understand. But we need to understand our sin before God. it's, It's hard for our minds to wrap themselves around us, but our salvation and our eternity is at stake. We forgive others, or we ourselves will not be forgiven. Forgiven servants forgive other servants. That's what Paul says in Colossians, commands us to do back in Colossians chapter 3. In verse 12, I think I put it in your bulletins. Put on then, watch this, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Okay, cool. Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against one another, forgiving one another, watch this, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you should try your hardest to forgive. So you should forgive if, they, if it works out, if you see him again. He says, you must forgive. This is a command. You must forgive because you've been forgiven so much by the Lord. This is how it is in the kingdom of God. It's a place like no other. It's a place of purity. And I'll simply say this, the kingdom of God is a place of forgiveness. The kingdom of God is a place of forgiveness because our king is the source of forgiveness. We act like the king because we're in his kingdom. And that's how it is. Carson writes, those in the kingdom serve a great king who has invariably forgiven far more than they can ever forgive someone else. Therefore, failure to forgive excludes one from the kingdom whose pattern is to forgive. This is you don't forgive somebody else, you're not in the kingdom because you don't understand what it's like here. You don't understand what God has done for you. The kingdom of God, you could say it the other way, the kingdom of God has no place for unforgiveness. There's no place for unforgiveness in the kingdom of God. The king forgives us, so all of his servants must also forgive each other. We see this all over the Bible. Micah 7, 18 tells us simply, who's a God like you? Forgiving iniquity. Who is like you? No one who forgives. Jonah whined when God was going to forgive the Ninevites, which is one of my favorite parts of the Bible. He literally whines that God is a forgiving God. He's like, I knew you would forgive them. They're just like you to be so merciful and kind and forgiving. I want to see them smoldering piles of dust. Jesus in the Lord's Prayer teaches us to pray, 
forgive our transgressions. Why? As we forgive those who have transgressed against us. The kingdom of God is a place of forgiveness. This is one of those weeks where the Holy Spirit does all the work of application for us, right? Because I can tell through the looks on your faces that we've all thought of our past and we've all thought of things where it's like, maybe you're, eh, that, mm, yeah, that one situation, yeah, that, that one person, it's not really forgiven and I'm still not forgiving them, right? Holy Spirit does the work. The relationship is unresolved because of sin. Do it. Go. Don't delay. Pray yourself up. Take the log out of your own eye. Go talk to them. Seek forgiveness and reconciliation. If you need the church, that's what Jesus has given us the church and membership for. Tell the story of how much you were forgiven. Maybe you're here this morning and these pieces of the gospel then, these bigger pieces about sin and our sin against God have fallen into place for you. The depth of your sin has been realized a little bit more. Maybe it clicked that you owe God a debt that you cannot pay this morning. He paid it. Forgiveness and freedom from that sin can be yours. Again, don't delay. Place your full faith in Jesus Christ. Maybe you're here today and you're working through the carnage of unresolved sin where you've been deeply hurt by sin. I'd say this, run to the king. Run to the king of the kingdom. Our, our protector, our defender, our perfect judge. Run into the refuge of the kingdom, which is the place of forgiveness, and let the reality of true forgiveness in Jesus grow those little springs of hope back in your soul. Kingdom of God is a place of forgiveness. Father, this is a tough word this morning as we think about how much we sin against each other, Lord. We think about how prevalent it is. We think about the damage that sin does and has done. Undoubtedly, there are people sitting, listening to this, realizing the extent of which they live their lives in guilt or unresolved issues or pain or trauma from something that has happened. Lord, you've given us so much on the cross. Lord, we pray that everyone in those situations would seek that reconciliation, would seek that resolution, would seek that forgiveness that only you can give. We pray for the conversations that will happen. We, we pray for us when we do sin against each other to be quick. We pray for the spirit of repentance to be on those who, who need it. We pray for the spirit of healing to be on those who need it. And we pray most of all that people would look at our lives and see the kingdom of God reflected in our hearts through forgiveness. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.